1: brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell
0: for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Richard Dennis, welcome to Better Reading.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So Richard um, is the Chief Economist and former executive director of the Australian Institute. He is a prominent Australian economist, author and public policy commentator, and a former associate professor in the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University in Canberra that's that's kind of huge it's usually um we talk to people around books and i know you've had a few and you've written a a couple of essays as well but really we've got you on this podcast today to talk about um what's happening at the moment we feel that our readers and our listeners um it would be good for them to have perhaps an unbiased view of what's happening out there because there's a lot of political discussions. And I'm curious myself to talk to you and to talk to you about the current mood, where we're at, where we're going and how will we come out at the other end. So they're big questions, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So talk to me a little bit about yourself because that was a very brief intro.
2: I'll look! Well, as you said, I'm an economist. I've been in and out of academia, in and out of think tanks, uh, giving advice to politicians and companies for, well, for, for, for nearly 30 years now. Uh, and yeah, I'm one of those lucky people who, who loves their job. Um, yeah. Half I've of my day is... Well, lucky, isn't it? I mean, I I spend half my days sitting alone writing, which is how I get my head straight and I spend the rest of my time chatting to people about things that I'm interested in and hopefully they're interested in. So I kind of, you know, I get both sides of me out through two different kinds of work, writing and talking.
0: I know you've written a book um, called Affluenza, When Too Much Is Never Enough so let me just explain to our readers, we're, we're recording this remotely um, because of uh, COVID-19. Uh, usually I do these in person and I've got to say, Richard, I've missed the human contact and the human cues. So bear with us, listeners, um, and we're also, um, you know, it's different technology for me, so that's that's been different. But um, I'm, I, the conversations are still fantastic um, and I want to talk about for ages I've been saying to anybody who would listen that we're a country of affluence right and that to me has created lack of empathy and now we have this so firstly I want to go back to I mean I often think of Australia and I think sometimes in my darkest moments I think that why aren't we like some of the Scandinavian countries why aren't we progressive why aren't, don't we have alter, alternate you know fuel sources why are we so relying on coals why did we go to down the track of what I think is conservatism rather than not Um, and then because, you know, we were described for so long as the lucky country, really how lucky are we? And those attitudes, I guess, have led us to where we are now.
2: Oh, look, very much so. Well, let, let's start with the big picture. Australia is one of the richest countries in the world. We live at the richest point in world history. Uh, and until until right now, uh, politicians, state and federal, Labor and Liberal would brag endlessly about the fact that the Australian economy had grown for 29 years in a row. It's 29 years since... Can
0: you explain to me what we live at the richest point of world history? Can you explain yeah. that to me? Yeah.
2: Well, look, the way, we, the way we measure income and the way we measure wealth, um, as in material wealth, uh, there's never been more of it. Uh, and and look at most... So, you know, look at the, the, the sum of people's accumulated savings, uh, the, the add up all the incomes we earn. Australia is a far financially richer place than it's ever been in our history and that's that's true around the world so you know we really are in the 7000 years of recorded history from a material point of view you know to be middle class in australia today is to be one of the wealthiest people the world has ever known but we've been made To feel poor. We've been told that we can't afford to have the health system and the education system we had 20 years ago. And as you said in your introduction, we've certainly been told that we either can't or shouldn't have uh, the kinds of health or education or transport or energy policies that the the Nordic countries have adopted, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Finland. You know, and those countries always come at the the very top of the pops. Not just for wealth, but for happiness and uh, and for for lifespan and for everything else. So, yeah, unfortunately, a, a big part of my job as an economist is is trying to explain to people that in Australian public debate, in Australian political debate, we've been offered a very very narrow range of choices, uh, and a lot of people are frustrated by that. But and why? To be- Oh well, because the, the people offering the choices are happy with those choices. I mean, think about going to a think about going to a restaurant. The waiter comes out and says, "Here are all the things you can order from." Uh, well, that gives us choice. That's great, but who wrote the menu? You know, who's <laughs> the chef in the kitchen that gets to decide what we choose from? So, in Australia. Uh, you know, successive governments, successive political parties, our, our business community have spent decades narrowing the range of choices available to us. And it doesn't mean, you know, again, we're one of the richest countries in the world. But uh, if you said in Australia six months ago, how about we make childcare free for everybody, uh, everyone would have told you you were mad and we couldn't afford it. Well, this week the government announced free childcare. Guess what? <laughs> we we apparently, well, apparently we couldn't afford it when we were rich and we can afford it now that we're going broke. Mm.
0: What do you think made us that way? Is it, is it because, you know, the governments are simply the people we vote for, right? I yep. mean, that's it's kind of, I mean, I look at the current government and, you know, it, it sends shivers up my spine. Um, but, the, you know, people voted for him.
2: Oh, absolutely. Oh, look, ultimately, I'm a Democrat. I, I res- I'd rather live in a democracy than any other kind of system, and uh, I don't. I don't agree with anything uh, that e- I don't agree with everything that, that that any government has ever set out to do. Uh, but I, I respect their right to make those choices. Um, and yeah, look, clearly, a majority of people at the last election either voted for the coalition or against Labor. It's not clear which. Uh, but they've they've formed a government. They've only got a majority of one seat, but they've formed government. Uh, And why are we offered such narrow choices? Oh, look, it's a great question. I've been lucky enough to spend a bit of time in the Nordic countries. I've been lucky enough to spend a bit of time in, in lots of countries around the world. And, Things that we think are heresy, a lot of people around the world just take for granted. I mean, uh, you know, Germany doesn't just have free universities for all of its students. Uh, Germany offers free university for temporary residents and refugees. How do they afford that? They well, they afford that by uh, choosing to collect a bit more tax and choosing to spend it on those things. Mm. Uh, we 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 yeah we we we're, we're not we're not offered a broader range of choice in Australia, and and arguably when we are offered one, we we've chosen the conservative options. That's not wrong. Uh, but we shouldn't pretend we don't have much broader choices than the ones we've made.
0: So I'm going to be talking about pre-COVID and post-COVID because I don't know what the world's going to look like afterwards.
2: But PC well, and BC, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right.
0: But if I look at that, I mean, I've always, and I say this a lot on the podcast, that John Howard introduced hatred in this country through Tampa and using refugees, I think, um, uh, as a political tool. But you know people jumped on it real quick. It wasn't that he was forcing it down our throats. People accepted that. And we were I feel that for a long time we were the lucky country and the free country and you know when you look at you know post-Vietnam War and the Vietnamese orphans that came to this country, you know, um and that were embraced by Australians. But then all of a sudden there seems to have been a shift and was it a political shift to stay in power or was it the shift of people? Were people feeling that they want to keep their affluence or were they feeling that their affluence is under
2: threat? Oh, look, what, it's, a, it's a great question and it's a big question. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll answer bits of it. Um, look, I hate to say it, but it's, it's history says it's not too hard to get humans to play us versus them. Uh, the, the trick is to define who's us and who's them. And I would say that, you know, the biggest leaders, the best leaders uh, are those that have the biggest notion of who us is, you know, that they're trying to build a very big, broad coalition of support uh, and, and get people to focus on the things that are important to all of them. But there's another approach and that's that's to divide and conquer, you know, and unfortunately, it's it's not hard in Australia or indeed in a lot of countries. To get people to focus on difference rather than similarity, and and John Howard was was highly successful in doing that. And a little bit of history, but in in the nineteen eighties, John Howard was very unpopular in the Liberal Party. Uh, former when, Liberal,
0: yeah, when he had one eyebrow, then
2: that's well, yes. But you know, former Liberal <laughs> leaders like Malcolm <laughs> Fraser and Andrew Peacock uh, mm-hmm. were Liberal in the true sense of the word. They they. You know Malcolm Fraser warmly welcomed uh, Vietnamese refugees to Australia. Andrew Peacock uh, was was very open to uh, to to treating people of all races and all countries as welcome here. And back in the eighties, John Howard was was quite unpopular in the Liberal Party for for sort of blaming at the time it was Asians for uh, you know coming here in droves and 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 ruining our country. But the Liberal Party didn't kind of Take up that cause, and the Labor Party didn't. But after Pauline Hanson sort of proved how how politically potent those arguments were, uh, John Howard really came into his own, and and ideas that had been unwelcome in the Liberal Party uh, were, were were rapidly adopted. So, yeah, John Howard played a very big role in it. He was he was very good uh, at at creating difference, and not just. Ethnic difference. I mean, uh, free, I mean, look at the way we treated the unemployed. We we mm. we increased the age pension steadily, uh, and, and we and we and we kept people on unemployments on crushingly small benefits. You know, and whenever it came budget time, we were sort of told, "Hey, should we give more money to pensioners or should we give it to the unemployed?" Even even people on welfare were divided and conquered. Um, so. Yeah, it's an old trick. It's an effective trick, but it's it's not a good way, I think, to to build a cohesive society or indeed a strong economy.
0: Talk to me about the coal industry.
2: <laughs> oh, look, the coal it industry. It comes
0: hand in hand, don't you think?
2: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, look, the the coal industry in Australia has got the best you know, public relations machine you could imagine. Hmm. There's twenty we nearly all 20- feeling
0: sorry for Gina Reinhardt when they were trying to introduce the what was it, the mining tax. Oh, exactly. Everybody was worried about her welfare. I mean, what?
2: Well, well let's let's look at the big picture. There's nearly twenty-five million of us Australians and, and a whopping fifty thousand of that twenty-five million work in coal mines. So ninety-nine point five percent of Australians don't work in coal mines. But hmm such is the power of the coal industry, such is their enormous expenditure on public relations, uh, that most Australians think that somehow we kind of all owe our living or our livelihoods uh, to the coal industry. And there's this top-secret organisation called the Australian Bureau of Statistics and it, 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 it publishes all sorts of data on, on employment and output. It's all entirely top-secret. It's hidden on their website Anyone can go there and see that the coal industry is a very small employer, that it's overwhelmingly foreign-owned. And while it makes a contribution to our economy, uh, it, makes a, it employs far less people than the arts industry. It employs far less people uh, than the education industry. It employs far less people than the health sector. And by the way, entertainment, tourism, arts, education, they're all big exporters too, But in Australia, when it comes to jobs, we talk about coal. When it comes to exports, we talk about coal. The data says that's a very kind of plays a very small role. Uh, But our politics and our media say we just have to talk about coal all the time. And uh,
0: that's given me a segue into media because I want to talk (laughs) about Murdoch and how much has that shaped our country?
2: Oh, look enormously. Um, I mean, less so, I think, than it used to, because you know, as a percentage, fewer and fewer people buy newspapers. Look, Australia has one of the most concentrated media markets uh, in the developed world. I mean, seventy-seven zero, seventy percent. Uh, of our newspapers uh, are owned by one company, Rupert Murdoch's News Corp, uh, and and News Corp dedicates, you know, its front page most days of the week to attack the ABC, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to literally undermine faith in in a key democratic institution. So I don't a- know
0: how that family sleeps at night. I don't know because it's all about acquiring personal
2: wealth. I was going to say I think they they sleep on the on the on the most expensive sheets. Mm-hmm. Can imagine. Yes, uh, do. You know, no doubt they think they're doing something good for themselves or their family or the world.
0: Really? They I'm deny sure. climate change, they're pro
2: mining. And I didn't say I agree with them. I just I reckon they've got themselves convinced they're there to help. But you know, when when you when you put so much of a country's media in the hands of such a small group, uh, it can do enormous harm. And and look, you know, sadly, right now in the middle of a global pandemic, that's you know anyone watching the news can see what happens if if this virus is allowed to run unchecked. If you look at what's happening in Italy and Spain. You know, here in Australia, you know, we have some of the best paid columnists in the country kind of saying it's no worse than the flu and what are we overreacting to? These are the same people. The same people that are ignoring the medical science here are exactly the same people that have told us for decades to ignore the climate science.
0: And they're the Murdoch people.
2: And Well, they're employed by the Murdoch press, absolutely. Mm. So it has a big effect on our country.
0: All right, so I was just trying to set the scene here. If you think about conservative politics versus liberal politics, conservative has always been about less government, right? I mean, in its most simplistic term, isn't that what the the feeling is? Well, it used Less to government. be.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it used to be, and, and and I wrote a I wrote a book about this called Dead Right. Um, how how neoliberalism ate itself. Um, the, yeah, so for, for many years we were told by conservatives that uh, you know cutting government spending was good and cutting regulation was good, and if only we cut enough spending and cut enough regulation, then we'd all be rich and happy. Uh, but in recent years, that's that's been morphing quite rapidly. You know, the, the modern conservatives love to subsidise coal mines. They love to subsidise uh, private schools or private hospitals. But they, they hate to subsidise renewable energy and they hate to subsidise uh, uh, you know, domestic violence shelters and all sorts of other mm, important public, public amenity and yeah, public yeah. health. So what used to be an ideology of opposing government spending has morphed into a political strategy where they oppose public spending on their enemies and love public spending on their friends. And of course, you know, the minute the crisis hit, uh, the government spent $200 billion in 20 days. Rightly, I'm glad they have.
0: Yeah, I want to get there. But before I get there, I want to talk about how globally we ended up with three bozos. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well i guess you know democracy doesn't promise good outcomes um hopefully it just promises uh transparent ones but yeah is it look an
0: anomaly in his historically or is uh, it is it where we were always going to end up sometimes i think it's apathy that's got us hmm. here particularly in this country like do people care enough you know that you know as you say we're wealthy enough we get on well enough you know is it apathy that gets somebody like uh, scott morrison in but what does it take to get Scott Morrison, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson all in at the same time, at a time where we probably needed much different leadership?
2: Yeah, look, I think, so how, what, what have they got in common? You know, they're all blokes, obviously, um, right. but they're all effectively populist nationalists. Uh, each, you know, Boris Johnson made Brexit his thing you know England getting out of Europe England being special
0: well that's working out for him because I'll have to close the borders now anyway so that's well
2: indeed (laughs) um Scott Morrison was the guy who stopped the boats Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, Donald Trump is the guy that promised to build a wall. Mm-hmm. So uh, all of them have defined themselves in the us versus them game. All of you it? Well, yeah, but of, of the other, you know, we, we should fear those on the other side of the border. And as I said before, unfortunately, there's, there's a long, if not proud, there's a long political history of turning that into electoral success uh, the problem is it doesn't usually lead to social success or economic success, and it certainly doesn't lead to peaceful, harmonious relationships between countries. So it's a very dangerous game, populist nationalism, but done well, as those three have done it, uh, it, it can be a very successful game. It doesn't, it doesn't take you very far uh, in terms of a country, but it can certainly take a particular politician far all the way to White House or number 10 or being the Australian Prime Minister. Do
0: you know, at the time of of the um, election here in Australia, um, where I was absolutely certain it was going to be a Labor victory, somebody said to me the night before, I know the reason why you vote Labor is because you're such a snob. (laughs) And I thought, wow, when did that turn around? When did that turn around that now to actually vote in this country, Labor, or in the U.S. Democrats, or in in the UK Labour, d- is that now snobbery? I mean, I think that there has been such a shift between those two parties in this country. Whereas now, like you know, Western Sydney are voting for the Liberal Party.
1: It's yeah. I
0: feel that that's astounding. It's an astounding sh- shift, and it probably happened. While I wasn't noticing
2: it. Yeah, oh, but again, I agree. But it's it, it it happened for a reason. Some very clever people manipulated a whole country. If you can, if you can get uh, low income workers in in casual jobs. Uh, to 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 blame refugees and migrants <laughs> instead of governments and their employers, uh, then that's that's a very successful political trick. So uh, again,
0: based on hatred,
2: of course, you know. But you know, humans are what they are, and and getting people to fear another or blame another is is an old and successful trick. So yeah, I mean, think about it. The last election, we talk a lot about Queensland, but. Um, Labor lost two seats in Queensland. Uh, it also lost two seats in northern Tasmania. So let's let's talk about them. So Labor lost as many seats in northern Tasmania as it did in Queensland. Northern Tasmania has, uh, well, Tasmania is the lowest income state in Australia and northern Tasmania is the poorest part of the poorest state in Australia. And Labor, who was proposing to, give free childcare for everybody, earning up to $70,000 and free cancer treatment for everybody. Labor lost two seats in uh, and funded by uh, removing some tax loopholes. Labor lost two seats in the poorest part of the country, promising free health and free childcare to a party that was promising to protect tax loopholes uh, for high income owners, very few of whom live in Northern Tasmania, that's that's no mean feat. I mean, well played, Scott Morrison. But again, the trick is to get people not to look at their 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 own personal economic interests or the policies that would affect them personally. The trick is to just make them afraid of someone and then promise to protect them from that fear.
0: It's it's, it's astounding, isn't
2: it? Oh, well, you know, I'm I'm a a keen observer of politics. Scott Morrison's not the first one to do it. Uh, Sadly, I don't think he'll be the last. But boy, that's exactly, again, if if we, we talk so much about Queensland and coal, but really, why did Labor lose two seats in northern Tasmania, promising free childcare and free health to low income earners? Uh, yeah. And the answer is because those people were more afraid of refugees uh, or, or more afraid of terrorists or more afraid of someone than they were of going broke or getting sick.
1: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.
2: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoted for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: I want to touch on one more thing before we start talking about COVID-19 and the economy. When, when I think I know the answer to this. The shift where we started where politics or anybody just started lying generally and telling us things that weren't truths. Now, Trump is a master at it, but so, so is Scott Morrison. And I feel if you go back politically, it again started with Howard. Back in the day, if there was a minister that misbehaved if or whatever happened, those people would lose their job, you know, the, the, the Prime Minister would sack them. He, he didn't do that. That started then, I think, and that's when I think untruth started to be accepted. And uh, it's becoming a pandemic, I think.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, you know, politicians have, have lied for as long as we've had democracy. But Do you think um,
0: outright, though? outright yeah. lying with stats outright lying you know like well let's take Trump for instance you know we're all going to be able to go to mass on Easter Sunday well I hope yeah. they do because that's called natural selection but let's say where did that come from that's a lie
2: yeah no I agree no I, my, my point is I, I don't think John Howard told the first lie in politics in Australia but my point is that uh, he did a you know,
0: reprimand
2: well, he didn't reprimand, but but also with you know the lies he told about refugees throwing their children overboard. He right. he he really that was inst- the worst lie of all. Well, that's that's my point. Like from from that point on, there was kind of no bottom. Um, what what he realised, and what subsequent generations of politics uh, politicians have realised after a lie that audacious, uh, is that if you're powerful enough you can get away with a lie that big. Now, how do you get away with a lie that big? Um, well, let's come back to the media before. When you mm. when when you have such a large section of the media that will always barrack for one side of politics, it what 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 doesn't happen now, what very rarely happens in Australia now, is for basically for all of the media to at some point just say, well, well, that's obviously a lie. So the truth has become a partisan football and, uh, you know, if half the media says... Uh, that's a lie and the other half spends just as much time reminding people of someone else's lie, uh, we, we, we're not really holding ministers to account. I mean, think how common it is now when a politician's accused of doing something wrong. Think how common it is for them to point out that someone else did something wrong. Well, if your children did that, you'd never let them get away with it. Imagine, you know, you catch well, your Well, it used
0: to be you'd lose that position. I mean, really, up to John Howard. Before then, you wouldn't, you know, that there would be too much public pressure or media pressure and that yep. minister would have to go. He yep, but, changed that.
2: He, uh, oh, he changed that, but he he was facilitated in changing that and he, and he casts a long shadow because these days it's very rare for the media uh, to all act independently. And and if a minister can point to half of the newspapers saying, ah, oh, it's not that bad, uh, the minister can justify sticking around. So I, I agree with you. I just think... It's, it wasn't just John Howard's shamelessness. It's the combination of a lack of shame now. I mean, I use that term literally. Like once mm-hmm. upon a time, people would be ashamed of certain conduct. And, and when their colleagues began to feel shame reflected on them because of the behavior of their colleagues, their colleagues would say, look, it's time to go. But you know, if you listen to Donald Trump, if you listen to Boris Johnson, if you listen to Scott Morrison, uh, they're not the only people that are a bit shameless these days, but their, their whole persona is based around, uh, is based around shamelessness. Like Donald Trump will just stand up when accused of breaking the law and call it fake news and move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, most humans couldn't endure that much shame but politics, is modern politics, is kind of vulnerable to people who can endure that much shame. They're, once upon a time, shame led to self-regulation. These days, shame is seen by, is seen as a form of weakness. I mean, Bromwyn Bishop doesn't think she should have stepped down for the helicopter scandal. Mm. She's still blamed. No, to this day, she blames Tony Abbott. She thinks they should have just toughed it out. She mm. literally, to this day, has no shame uh for her decision she's proud of her decisions uh and that's kind of the modern way don't worry about all the people criticizing you just tough it out it'll be all right
0: and this is a new phenomenon, and we're seeing it all the time and i you you probably see this like the washington post or the new york times and i think even the herald started doing it where they're fact checking every time these people speak (laughs) and a lot of it would be at least 70 80 90 percent of it is wrong
2: uh, I mean, indeed.
0: Fundamentally, that makes a broken system. If everything that these people are telling us is an untruth, that is, a, that is a I, I think, a mammoth
2: problem. Oh, I, I, I share your conclusion. I think it's a massive problem. But in a democracy, like in, in the Australian Constitution, there is no mention, there's <laughs> not a single mention in the Australian Constitution about the obligation on politicians to tell the truth. So in a democracy, if if we think it's okay for them to lie, then then it is okay for them to lie. Uh, you know, we can we can kind of be frustrated by that. We can we can call to some higher order principle, but under our constitution, there's no obligation to tell the truth. There's no obligation uh to uh to be kind to people there's no obligation to make good decisions in the long run it's up to us voters to decide who should be in those positions and and part of the shamelessness this comes back to what i was saying about how kids behave part of the shamelessness is to whenever you're accused of doing anything is to just accuse everybody else of doing something even worse and, and that has a terrible effect on our democracy, a terrible effect on our body politic, because it, what it does is it normalises the idea that everybody lies or everybody's got their fingers in the till. And if, if, if voters actually believe that everybody's got their fingers in the till and everybody lies, then there's no point getting too angry when one person lies, is there?
0: No. So
2: it's a oh, terrible I- consequence for our democracy.
0: It is, and I want to kind of segue into COVID. But before I do that, do you think Obama, Barack Obama, was a liar?
2: Oh, I'm, I'm sure he did tell a lie or a mistruth at some point. You know, but uh, you not know, not to I, the I, same extent. No, I don't think I don't think anyone's like Trump. I don't. No. But I, I just I don't know. I can't put my hand on my heart and say yeah. everything Barack Obama said was true. I'm I'm sure he was obliged to lie to not just us but the American people about uh some some elements of their foreign policy or their I military. Think,
0: policy, I for think for he example. would have had a problem with that though. I think that oh, he wasn't shameless.
2: I don't think he was shameless. I didn't say that. No, no uh, I know, yeah. Um, But my point is, you know, when when a country employs as many spies as America and those spies are learning things about their rivals across the country and across the world, uh, it's kind of inconceivable to me that Barack Obama wasn't obliged to tell lies at some points. Otherwise, he'd reveal how much he knew about what was really going on. So, Mm. but again, I don't think he was shameless. Uh, Mm. I think he took democracy more seriously than that.
0: Okay, so then we have this pandemic, right? And I want to talk about the onset of it because there are so many people that I knew at the time saying, shut the borders down, shut the borders down. Now, that didn't happen and it's where we're at now. But I wonder, like on reflection, I often wonder, who makes that call? Where is the world leadership these days? I mean, it used to be that there was you know, um, a few, you know, European leaders like Angela Merkel or, you know, Barack Obama, for instance, from the States and whatever, that there would be a collaboration and that they, I feel that if we had those types of people, Um, leading the countries or leading the world at the time that maybe we wouldn't have got here. But that could be just my bias. So tell me Uh, what you think.
2: Well, you know, let's be clear. There's no such thing as a world leader. Uh, We have nation states with leaders and, and and the leaders of some nation states have a moral power that that they can exert beyond their borders. But at the moment, you know, I don't think Donald Trump exerts nearly as much moral leadership uh, outside of his borders as Barack Obama or or indeed George W. Bush. So, yeah, I think, you know, this crisis has hit at a time uh, where because there are populist nationalists in charge, Uh, those people have kind of proudly cut themselves off from performing a a, a leadership-type function. Margaret Thatcher had power outside of her borders Uh, not because of any constitution, but because people took her seriously and she wanted to be a player on the world stage. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Scott Morrison made his whole career out of protecting the borders and, you know, he he couldn't even protect Sydney from a passenger ship. So, uh, it's um, I, I think, you know, history... Uh, at the moment, I've got to say, I think Australia broadly is doing a lot better than most countries and, uh, and you know, better perhaps than some people thought we would a week or a month ago. Uh, Why? But Why? I'm just, oh, well, I think our infection rates uh, are not as bad as most similar countries. We Why? We've seen... I think partly because we had a head start. We've literally got a crystal ball we can look into two or three weeks into the future called Spain and Italy and it makes it a lot easier for Australian leaders, state and federal, to avoid the mistakes made in those countries because we can literally see what it ha- what happens if if you don't act decisively. But still, I think the early stage of the outbreak in Australia was... Uh, wasn't managed as well as it could have been, um, but there's there's no doubt that at this point in time, Australia appears to be doing a lot better than, than Italy, Spain, or certainly the US.
0: Mm. Um, you know, I think about the humanitarian crisis that's going to happen because of this, and firstly, you know, you think about those cruise ships that are, apparently there's 18 cruise ships out there that are just wandering the ocean and they've got sick people on there and nobody will take them. I mean, again, you know, that requires some kind of global leadership, doesn't it? I mean, oh, it does. It, in a way, I feel that that's very, it's tragic on so many levels. It's also a humanitarian problem, but it does frighten me that it isn't even one of the things that we think is is. It's a crisis and we have to deal with it now.
2: Uh, look, absolutely. But, you know, again, this hits at a time where, you know, a, a populist nationalist like Trump uh, is is engaged in a trade war with China rather than, rather than the leaders of the biggest countries getting together to solve this problem. China and America are, are throwing rocks at each other in an attempt to, to sort of gain leverage and legitimacy over each other in the eyes of the world. So... Uh, of, of course, some combined world leadership would help us get out of a crisis like this, as it would help us get out of a crisis like climate change. But uh, there's, there's no constitutional obligation on the American president or the Australian prime minister to, to act in the world's interests. Um, but there's certainly lots of incentives for them to act in their own short-term political interests. And that's sadly what we're seeing.
0: What do you think will happen to those eighteen those ships? Apparently, there's something like thirteen thousand crew members out there.
2: Oh, look, I don't know. Uh, I, I hope that Australia finds a way to be compassionate and helpful to those people. Not just because we have an obligation to do so, but because there's Australians on ships stuck off other countries' uh, mm. borders, and you know, we the way we cover Australians stuck off a uh, stuck off a port in the US being held captive uh you know we need to compare that to the way we're looking at how we're treating boats stuck off our own borders again yeah. some international leadership would be nice but mm. um, it's not it's not inevitable
0: so what's it going to do to us like like say in the current moment how do you think government's handling it and Again, I think that this is interesting where government has had to intervene where, you know, we've got a a party that doesn't believe in government that much. But anyway, um, they are there and they're having a press conference almost every hour. Sometimes they're saying something, sometimes they're not. But what's your view on how this government is handling it?
2: Uh, well, I think that um, uh, they were slow off the mark. I think that you know the mixed message from the Prime Minister was literally uh, two weekends in a row. One weekend, I'm off to the footy because mm-hmm. I love my sharkies. The next weekend, <laughs> I, can't, I can't believe Australians went to Bondi. It's un-Australian to go to the beach. Those Those two things, I mean, time is a bit warped now that we're all stuck at home, but those two things happened on successive weekends. Uh, so, uh, similarly, you know, there was footage of the health minister sitting next to the chief medical officer, shoulder to shoulder on morning television one day with the chief medical officer saying it's okay to shake people's hands. Five hours later, uh, the prime minister was standing, uh, next to the deputy chief medical officer. They were two meters apart. He said, it's common sense that we should stay away from people and it's common sense that we shouldn't shake hands. So, You know, to be clear, there were very uh, small and very big problems at the beginning of this crisis that weren't well managed, uh, particularly at our ports and particularly at our airports. Um, But uh, the the rollout of the of the lockdowns has uh, has helped a lot. Uh, Could it have happened sooner? Perhaps. Uh, We probably just needed to pay much more attention to people coming in from overseas where the vast majority of uh, the cases stemmed from. And on the economic front, the government in 20 days has spent nearly $200 billion uh, on new measures. To give you some sense of the significance of that, in in an ordinary year, the federal government would spend a bit over $400 billion in 20 days, it's spent an additional $200 billion, and we haven't even begun to to deal with this crisis. So uh, they've abandoned their small government, small spending. They've abandoned their obsession with budget surpluses. Uh, but uh, I think a lot of the, the new measures they've announced uh, – in you know history won't judge them well i don't think they're being targeted at the at the people in the industries that need them most there's big spending uh, and that's better than small spending but just because it's big doesn't mean we shouldn't still target it as carefully as we can and a lot of what we're calling a wage subsidy is probably going to end up being a business subsidy uh, and that's going to cost us a lot of money and probably not save as many jobs as spending that same money in different ways might.
0: Um, I wonder what what's the deal with hairdressers, do you think? Do you think he feels <laughs> as though he needs a haircut?
2: Uh, I don't know if you're teasing, but I'm bald, so I'm the wrong person. But <laughs> uh, <And> seriously, hairdressers. <laughs>
0: hairdressers are still open or still meant to be open. I know a lot of them have made their decision. To close, but if yeah. I'm walking down the street, for instance, Richard, um, and a policeman stops me and I say I'm going to get my hair cut and coloured, is that a valid reason? Because they've still decided that hairdressers should be open, and so that. Oh. It's an essential service,
2: right? Yeah. Look, I think that we haven't done a good job of communicating what is and isn't essential. And, again, it's cruel to ask me whether haircuts are essential or not. Um, But yeah I think that's one of many examples of where the people are getting you know quite quite mixed messages about what's appropriate what's okay and and what they should do differently and uh, for a man who won the election ostensibly because he was such a good clear communicator it's 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 strange to say the least that he's done such a poor job of communicating some of those messages
0: Mm, I don't know how good he was well I guess he did he won the election he won (laughs)
2: but
0: remember the communication about the bus in Queensland he actually was wasn't on that bus but But anyway we won't go there okay so in terms of um and I don't know how much about this that you know talk to me about a pandemic and the dangers like you know what are we looking at three months six months nine months I, I know it's the great unknown but do you have any science behind that?
2: Uh, look I, I don't but i've read a lot of uh, i've read a lot of the science and look it looks like that we'll be living a quite a different life than we ever imagined for at least three months possibly six um, we won't have any uh, international tourists for example coming to australia for at least six months um, you know usually governments are trying to stimulate economic activity but Let's be clear: with you know, they've done the right thing here for health reasons, but it's it's the government that's crushed our tourism industry, crushed our retail industry, crushed our food industry, and crushed our export education industry uh, for good reason. I'm not criticising them for that, but to say this is unprecedented is a bit of an understatement. You know, Sydney getting hit hit by a meteorite would be unprecedented from an economic point of view. This you know, this This is unlike anything we've ever imagined before. Government having to use the power of the state to shut down some of the biggest employing industries in the country for, for months and months on end.
0: And as an economist?
2: Well, as an economist, I can just tell you what it's going to look like. Uh, you know, if no one wants to see scenes in Australian hospitals like Italian hospitals, there is no pill that can help the only way to stop the spread of this is to keep people away from each other and the only way to keep people away from each other is to shut down all the venues where people gather. So as an economist, uh, should we avoid <laughs> the scenes in Italy or not? Well, that's a, that's a social, moral and ethical question. One, I, I don't think we should, but that's, that's not an economist's perspective, that's a citizen's perspective. What are the economic consequences of that? Uh, well, they're enormous. Um, you know, the government is going to run deficits of hundreds of billions of dollars a year for the next two to three years at least. Um, the government is going to employ hundreds of thousands of extra people to perform all sorts of essential services, not just in health, but in, you know, we're now seeing free childcare uh, we're going to see a, a, a radical increase in the size of government in our society, which coming back to where we started this conversation, you know, we, we're going to look a lot more like Sweden and Norway in two years' time than we did last year. And personally, I think that's that's not a bad thing, but, you know, that's ultimately a democratic decision that, that others will make.
0: How will we look as a country at the end of it?
2: Uh, <laughs> well, um, we we're going to look poorer. Yeah. Uh, we, we're going to have between one and two million unemployed people in the lead-up to the next election, probably closer to two than to one. Uh, we're going to have... So you're
0: implying that it's going to take... you Because what, we're only year two into this government, so we've got another two years. So you're implying that when it's going to take a long time to recover.
2: Well, the crisis itself is going to run for anywhere between three and 12 months. And recovery from an economic crisis like this will always take longer than the crisis itself. So, yeah, by the time we go to the election in 2022, um, there'll still be way over a million unemployed people in Australia. We'll still uh, have families grieving from the loss of the people that have tragically died. Uh, Businesses will have gone broke. Uh, some some industries will never recover. Mm. Um, you know, we, we're used to having two big airlines in Australia. It's not inevitable we'll end this with one. We're used to having big retailers like David Jones and Meyer. It's not inevitable at the end of this, both of them will still be there. And again, hundreds of thousands, possibly more than a million people are are, are going to lose their job. Uh, and that's going to take years and years to unwind.
0: Mm. Wow. That's quite depressing, isn't
2: it? There is no good news in this. We've, you know, we've been sold for years the idea of pain for gain. You know, if we do this now, we'll be better off in the future. You know, we might not agree with the medicine that we're often forced to take, but the people people telling us to take the medicine usually have some story about how after we take the medicine, we'll be better off. Uh, Let's be clear, after we... After we endure this we'll just be worse off uh, we 'll be poorer uh, we 'll have mass unemployment, and hopefully uh, it 's not too bad, but I think we 'll have a society that 's uh, that's that's that 's pretty frustrated and you know that's that's that 's fertile ground for populist nationalists but it 's also fertile ground for those that think now 's the time to to, to build a new kind of society, a new kind of democracy. That fight, that debate is is yet to play out. But no one goes through something like what we're about to go through without having an impact on the way they see themselves in the world.
0: Okay, we need to finish off. Largely, our listeners are readers. Um, and so I want to try and finish off on a positive note here. And I think that they, you know, on a personal level and on things stopping, for instance, and us being... You know, told to adhere to the message of stay at home. You know, books. We've seen a spike in book sales for. You know, and it could only. It might just only be for a couple of weeks at this stage. But where people are, are stockpiling books to read, and I often think about the story and how the story has survived through time. What? What's? I mean, I guess uh, that to me is it's it's more of an emotional view, I guess, but when I think about story, it is part of everything we do. It is part of the economy. It is part of politics. It is part of family, social, home life, everything else. What's your view on that?
2: Oh, look, absolutely. Uh, So 15 years ago, I I wrote a book called Affluenza. And Two years ago, I wrote a book called Curing Affluenza right. and, and, and in the more recent book, it's, it's really all about the, the power of story to change our economy and our society. The stories we tell ourselves about what's possible and what's desirable have enormous cultural and economic impacts. Now, let me, let me give you a trivial example Uh, Every men's jacket you've ever seen has got four buttons on each cuff. Every jacket comes with eight buttons and none of them work. None of them work. They are pointless. But if I wore a jacket that didn't have those buttons on it, everyone would think it looked funny. So our our cultural norms determine so much of what we do. The entire industry for making ties is a bizarre cultural construct. Why on earth would anyone tie a knot around their neck? But the answer is, if everyone expects you to, then you will. Well, our cultural norms radically shape our economy. Twenty years ago, almost no one went out for coffee, and no one paid five bucks for a takeaway one. Uh, in Australia today, five hundred thousand people work in our cafes, while fifty thousand, a tenth of that, work in our coal mines. So the stories we tell ourselves about what we do and why we do it and what's normal and what's not are the major driver of culture, but culture is the major driver of the shape of our economy. There are plenty of countries in the world where you can't get a good coffee, but they're still happy enough. We, yeah. we, we, we can't get through a day without a good coffee. How, you know, how could you live like that? Yeah. So culture determines almost everything we do. Of course, we we need to eat, but what do we need to eat? Are we a vegetarian society or a, or a meat intensive society? <laughs> Don't
0: get me started. That's a whole different podcast. We might well, but
2: the, but my like point that. is simply <laughs> these are just cultural questions. and yeah. and and what we're experiencing right now is is a radical change to our culture. And from my point of view, if if we as a society spend a lot more money buying books, getting a massage and paying someone to teach me how to play the piano. If we spent a lot more money buying ideas and buying services and we spent a lot less money buying foot spas and, you know, crap at Christmas that we know our friends and family don't want, then we would tread so much more lightly on the planet. We wouldn't ruin the economy if we all stopped buying hot dog warmers and foot spas, but what we do is change the shape of the economy into one that employed a lot more people that did things that, harm, that don't harm the environment while consuming a lot less natural resources and, and protecting the environment. So we really can change the shape of our economy and the shape of our natural environment simply by having new norms about what we buy and what we think is valuable.
0: Well, I think people should be buying books and they should be reading stories and they should be making stories as well. Mm, Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Richard Dennis, I can't thank you enough. That was a fantastic conversation and I want you to come back and have another conversation with us at some point. Anytime.
2: We've all got time now. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you.